Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to today's Cheapside debate. Um, to introduce myself, my name is Jeremy Caddick. I'm the Dean at Emmanuel College up in Cambridge. They occasionally let me out to come and participate in these debates. Our topic today is that of immigration, and in particular, its economic aspects. Uh, it's an issue that the cover of Private Eye addressed itself to a few weeks ago. You may have seen it. The headline, Britain in Crisis, and Tony Blair is asking, what are we going to do about immigration? And Ruth Kelly says, I'll get a Polish bloke in to sort it out which illustrates rather neatly our ambiguous attitudes to this question. On one hand, the numbers of people moving around seem to be large. On the other hand, we recognize that the country needs productive workers. Sir Andrew Green uh, is the chair of Migration Watch, a body that thinks the numbers are too large. By profession, he is um, a diplomat. He was ambassador to Saudi Arabia and before that Syria, and also director for the Middle East at the Foreign Office before he retired in 2000. Mark Boliat is a well-known figure in the city, and particular in this area of the city as the common councilman for this ward. Uh, for 25 years, he worked uh, with major trade associations, and his appointments included Director General of the Council of Mortgage Lenders and of the Association of British Insurers. He's now the principal of Boliat Consulting, which consults on a wide range of public policy and other issues. and I'm sure in each case left the countries far better off than when he arrived. Uh, my journey today from Northwood, um, I didn't drive to the station, my immaculate cleaned car cleaned every other week by illegal immigrants operating on the high streets of Watford, offering a magnificent <laughs> service for six pounds only. Uh, walked to the station, went to the newsagent run by a very efficient Indian couple, bought my newspapers, came on the train, I'm sure driven by somebody from another country, stopped in my favorite little coffee shop for my cappuccino and muesli and yogurt. I'm sure the muesli and yogurt was packed by foreign workers who uh, work for labor providers who I represent, served by charming Polish workers. So it's nice to see a few English people at long last today. I'm a migrant myself. My great-grandfather moved from Brittany to Jersey as an economic migrant in 1870. He started a family there. We discovered that he started another family in France three years later, but that's another issue. <laughs> and uh, over 100 years later, I migrated from Jersey to the United Kingdom as an economic migrant. Interesting, most people migrate from the UK to Jersey to be an economic migrant, but I seem to have come the other way. Migration is wonderful. It contributes to higher living standards in this country. It gives migrants fantastic opportunities that they would not have in their home countries. And that applies to Britons going abroad as well as to people coming here. And the home countries benefit as well, particularly through remittances. I have an interesting collection of responsibilities. Your chairman wisely didn't read it out. I'm a director of the Somali Money Transmitters Association. 
interesting organization. Somalia is a fascinating country. It doesn't have a government. Well, that's not true. It's got about 12 at the last count. No bank will operate in Somalia. Western Union won't send money to Somalia. But money transmitters send money there. We hear a lot about overseas aid and the, more, the bigger need for overseas aid. Do you know that remittances by people working in this country back to their home are about five times the volume of overseas aid? And those remittances go directly to poor people. They don't go to Toyota land cruisers driven by the aid agencies. They don't go in corruption. They go straight to poor people. Wherever you live, go to somewhere poorer this weekend, to an immigrant area, and just look at the post offices and the services they're offering. You can walk into one of those post offices, walk into a grocer's shop, pay in £100, and 20 minutes later that £100 is withdrawn by somebody somewhere in Africa at a fraction of the price that HSBC would charge. So remittances play a vital part in the economies of poor countries. And we're talking about migrants, not immigrants. The government's got this notion that people come here for life. Many don't. They may stay for life, but they often come here with the intention of being here for a few years, earning some money, and particularly learning English. Because whatever country they're from, English is going to be important. And they return. And they return with better skills and qualities that they can use in their home country. Yes, of course, not everything is perfect. People say, what about all these nurses we're taking from the Philippines and Malawi? But you know, a lot of people are training to be nurses in the Philippines and Malawi, not to be a nurse in the Philippines or Malawi, but to be a nurse in Britain, because the prospects are so much better. They may well go back to their home country in due course, and that's extremely good. But they see Britain as the place that they probably want to work. But as I've said, we're not perfect. We live in a very dynamic economy. You will have seen the dynamism around you as you arrive with all the building work, which the rector can tell you all about. This is the signal of a really dynamic economy where things are happening. And yes, of course, if you've got a lot of people coming in, there can be local problems. There can be problems in schools, but we can't just talk about the number of children who don't speak English coming into our schools without understanding that there's many migrant teachers as well. And if we're talking about health tourists, we should be aware of just how many migrant workers work in the health service. But am I happy with all of this? No, I'm not. It's not a perfect situation at all. We actually live in a fictitious world in respect of migration. The government tells us that it has a policy called managed migration. It doesn't. We cannot manage migration into this country. Anybody from the European Union is entitled to come here and to live and to work. Well, that's a couple hundred million for a start with a few more hundred million to come in due course. From outside the UK, let me be frank, if you want a passport, I can get you one for 50 quid. Lithuanian, preferably, but if you want Estonian, I can manage that. If you'd like a Greek identity card, we can probably do that as well. The fact is, if you're white, you can buy one of these documents that's sufficient to get you in this country. Our border controls are as secure as the least insecure in the European Union, and that's saying quite a bit. So we can't actually control what's going on at all. The real problem to me is not the people who are here and who are allowed to be here, but the people who are here who are not supposed to be here. Uh, Sir Andrew might have a better figure than I, but I reckon there's between half a million and a million people in this country who are not supposed to be here. Amazingly, many of them are entitled to be here on the one condition that they do not work. So this seems an amazing policy. Welcome to people. You are allowed to be here, but you must not work. If we catch you working, we're going to punish you by stopping working. I find this rather odd. Now, in fact, of course, we do not stop them working at all. We force them to work in the flourishing informal economy. And there is no sector of the economy that is more thriving than the informal economy. Go and have your car washed and see what I mean. Ask them what country they come from. If they think you're a bit sus suspect, they'll tell you they're from Poland. Actually, they're from Kosovo, from the Ukraine, from Belarus, possibly from Romania or Bulgaria. Huge parts of the food industry in Britain, and that's where I do most of my work, are reliant on illegal workers. Now, you know, it's not, this is not supposed to happen. What is the government doing about it? What are the tax authorities doing about it? Well, I can tell you that the inland revenue is not very good at catching people who don't tell them that they exist. So for those of you who want to avoid tax, do not submit a tax return. 
just do not exist and they cannot catch you. They love going into offices and going through paperwork and filing cabinets and Excel spreadsheets and they'll find something wrong. They don't go into fields and find people working for cash. So to me, that is what is wrong. There are hundreds of thousands of people working in this country who are open to exploitation because they're not supposed to be here. They're not paying tax, so we don't benefit from the tax revenue that we are entitled to receive. So what do I want to see happen? I want to see us being realistic. I do not want to see us having a policy that doesn't work. Yes, it's very nice to have a policy that says we manage migration. And do you know this government really believes that in a couple of years' time it's going to count everybody in and out electronically, and that's going to be pretty interesting for the million people who are not supposed to be here in the first place. How are they going to be counted out when they're not in? And what I suspect will happen is that because they know if they go out, they can't come back in again, those that are inclined to go out won't go out, they'll stay in. And that's not quite as daft as it sounds. If we actually make it difficult for people to come back in, those that might want to go home may not go home. I'm from Jersey and we have these sort of problems. Um, Jersey's got a rather different policy. You know, we're not bothered about, um, in Jersey, what colour people are, what ethnic background. We're only bothered about how much money they've got. And for a time, Jersey had a policy that, you know, you could have rights to live there if you had been there living for 18 years continuously and you hadn't left. And there were people in Jersey who wanted to leave for family reasons, but didn't want to leave because if they left, they could never go back. And therefore, you had a policy designed actually to stop people um, living in the country permanently that had the opposite effect. Jersey, similarly, allows teachers to work, come in, but only to work for five years. So it's not attractive to a teacher with a family. So the teachers who come are all single. And what the young single people tend to do after five years, get married to a local. And at the end of five years, they're not allowed to teach anymore because their contract's up. So they stay in Jersey and don't teach, and Jersey employs another teacher who then marries somebody else. Now that's just an example of how all of these well-meaning policies designed to protect the local community tend not to work. So my plea, let's be realistic. Don't pretend we can control migration. A lot of the government policies really are designed for the Daily Mail, and my apologies to Sir Andrew who writes excellently for the Daily Mail, indeed single-handedly makes much of the Daily Mail worth reading. to flatter him. You will read about cases where the government is going after somebody. And I can tell you who they go after, people they can find. Somebody with a family. You know, you can go and knock on the door and arrest two people and three children who shouldn't be there. That's easy. Can you go into the fields of Lincolnshire and find somebody who shouldn't be there on a dark Friday night when it's raining? Probably not. So migration like any other major economic phenomenon, has got pluses and minuses. I believe the pluses rather tend to outweigh the minuses. But I believe we are having a fictitious debate in this country. We cannot control the number of people who are here. Let's recognize that, and let's have a policy that at least attempts to deal with those who should not be here, either by actually preventing them from being here, by stopping them being in this country if they're not supposed to be here, or perhaps by recognizing that they're here and having some arrangement whereby they can work lawfully, have the protections that the rest of us are entitled to, and pay the taxes that sadly we all have to pay. Thank you. Thank you very much. So migration is a wonderful thing, but we should be realistic about it. Sir Andrew, what do you think? Thank you. Well, I found myself agreeing with a great deal that Mark said. Um, and the reason for that is that he didn't address the real issues. Uh, the burden of what he said uh, was, it's all hopeless. Uh, and actually, by the way, it's rather convenient for the middle classes who can get their cars washed. Why is it suddenly hopeless? In 1997, net immigration was 50,000. It's gone up by a factor of five under the present government. Has the entire world changed, or has this government somehow lost its grip. You see, the reality is that we now face the largest wave of immigration in our history, far greater than anything in the past. We hear about the Huguenots. 
1% of the population at the time. They arrived over 50 years. The Jews done marvelously. Even now, there are three or 400,000, less than 1% of the population arrived over 50 years. The uh, East African Asians done pretty well. 27,000 over two years. We're now taking that number every single month. So my argument is not that immigration is a bad thing. I agree with a great deal uh, of what Marcus said. My argument is that the numbers are far too great for our society to absorb, that the pressure on our infrastructure, on our public services, and most importantly, on our community cohesion, is simply too great at this rate of flow. Not opposed to all immigration, obviously. Limited, highly skilled immigration is extremely valuable, both socially and economically. That's not what we've got. What we've got is massive levels of immigration. Only one in five of the immigrants who arrived in 2003 actually came here to work. Of those who are already here, only one in five earns more than the average wage. The suggestion that immigration is a massive benefit to our economy is absolute rubbish. The government's arguments are all misleading, if not downright false. I find that extraordinary. Uh, you may not. One argument they never use is the argument that Mark used, remittances. Great benefit to developing countries, I agree with that. Just so happens that uh, immigrants resident in Britain send home 10 million pounds a day. That is a cost to our economy. We have to earn that foreign exchange for them to send it home. I don't mind that. I think it's rather good for their countries. But actually, it's not what you hear from the government. It's interesting that the government's arguments keep shifting. They produce one argument, and then we knock that down, so they produce another one. I have a little paper called The Seven Deadly Spins, which lists the seven arguments they've produced, and each one we've knocked down, so they move to another one. Let me give you just a few examples. You've all heard about the 600,000 vacancies got to be filled. They started saying that in 2001. This was Blunkett, I think, started it. 600,000 vacancies must have immigrants to fill those vacancies. Since then, we've had net immigration, that's the number who come minus those who go, net immigration of roughly three quarters of a million, 700,000 odd. How many vacancies do, do you think we now have in the economy? 610,000. Hasn't changed. Must be something wrong with that argument. Well, of course there is, it's rubbish. And why? Because immigrants fill vacancies, yes, but they also create more demand, which creates more vacancies, so you have an endless cycle. They didn't tell you that, did they? Then you will have heard about the 2.5 billion that they contribute to the budget. You heard that one? It's a good one, that. The argument depends on who you describe as an immigrant. The only way they could get the result they wanted was to look at the children of mixed households, that is, where one parent is an immigrant and the other is, is uh, a British citizen. Okay? Now, it so happens there are three quarters of a million of those children, and of course they're expensive, education and so on. So they put the whole of that cost onto the host population and came up with their number. Now, if you do the logical thing, which is to split the cost 50-50, one parent immigrant, one parent not, split it 50-50, what do you get? You get a slight negative. Immigration costs us about 200 million pounds a year. I don't mind that, it's peanuts, so what? What I'm saying is that the arguments that they put up and repeat and repeat and repeat are false. They're fiddled. One more. You may have heard that immigrants comprise 8% of the population and produce 10% of GDP. Heard that one? 
It's in the Labour Party manifesto, I think. And they keep saying it. Well, that's another neat one. 8% of the workforce. What they don't say is that the immigrant populations on hold, this is no criticism, it's just a fact, have much higher unemployment, two or three times, depending on the nationality. And they have a much lower uh, participation rate by women because they have different social customs, and you could argue that's a good thing. They're bringing up their children at home as they should, but it is a fact. So if you correct for that and take the actual number of immigrants in our population and then you take their contribution to GDP, it's equal. It's even Stevens. So that argument falls to the ground. I could do some more, but I won't. Where they do have an argument uh, is the more recent one, where they say that it is reducing inflation and therefore you can have lower interest rates and therefore you can run the economy a bit faster. That is true. We don't dispute that. The Bank of England say that. I'm sure Mark would agree with that. But there are two little snags. One is that although they're adding to production, they're also adding to population, obviously. But have you heard the government say that? I think not. And I'll tell you why. Because the addition to the population is pretty well similar to the addition to the economy. In other words, the impact of immigration on GDP per head, which is our wealth per head, which is basically the level of economic development we've reached, is pretty well neutral. Every study that has been made, United States, Canada, Holland, by government-sponsored studies, finds the same thing. And the professor of economics at Cambridge, Bob Rothorn, wrote this. There is no evidence that large-scale immigration generates large-scale economic benefits for the existing population as a whole. On the contrary, all the research suggests that the benefits are either close to zero or negative. So we have to think about this. We can't just accept, frankly, what the government tells us. It's a very partial and inaccurate picture. I don't believe that immigration should be decided on economic grounds anyway, and most economists would say that too. But the reality is that we now face massive levels of immigration. They are adding to our population one million people every five years. That's the, that's the entire population of Birmingham. They account for 83% of our population growth. We will need in the next 20 years, government figures all of these, we will need in the next 20 years to build one and a half million houses purely for immigrants and three million for, uh, for the existing population. So what I'm saying to you is that the social cost of mass immigration is very high. I haven't even touched, and I won't go on because I, I think my time's expiring, I haven't touched on the social cohesion points, but you, they're obvious to you. The social cost of mass immigration is very high. The government arguments are frankly false. We do need a system to control it. We have had a system that had it reasonably under control. It can be reimposed. It should be. Thank you. Thank you. The format is that we spend the rest of the time till about five to one uh, with questions and comments from you. If you would like to make a contribution, the rector has a microphone to enable you to do that. If you'd like to raise your hand, if you'd like to say something. Hello. Um, I'm aware of people that are coming into the country to do coming to do sort of the work that locals don't do, want to do. Yes. I know somebody that's a, an apple grower. He tries to get local people to come and do the work. Um, it's not just picking apples, it's clearing fruit out and all, those, all of this sort of thing. The locals come along, they work for half an hour, half a day, and that's it, they don't want to do it. He, he's got migrant workers in, 
and he can work them hard and they work all day for the money that he pays them and they do the job. Mm -hmm. If we can't get local people to do the work, how are we going to get these jobs done? The question, if you didn't hear, was um, about migrant workers uh, taking jobs that local workers are um, un not prepared to do. Mark, you, I know, work with gangmasters. Do you have a comment on that? Uh, yeah, I'm chief gangmaster Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Um, Tuesdays this week. Uh, and indeed, uh, almost all of the food that is on your supermarket shelves is now produced by migrant labor, uh, mainly from the accession states uh, of Eastern Europe. Um, and it's not because my members want to employ people from Poland. Why should they if they can get people from Lincoln? Um, and the reason that they employ people from Poland is because um, they work. Their absentee rate is something approaching zero. Um, you know, they're good workers, and that's why they're employed. And actually, I think there's a benefit to the British economy from all of this of actually perhaps improving skills levels all around and making people understand that you're not going to earn a good income unless you're capable of performing. But, you know, we did manage without them until a couple of years ago. Actually, that's not true. They were here. They were simply illegally here. Um, but, you know, we did manage without them 10 years ago. Now, what would happen if we did not have the people doing the low-paid work? Well, the answer is that the wages would be higher. You'd have to pay more to get people to do it. More of the work would be done outside the UK. So, for example, instead of the beans on your supermarket shelves being packed by Poles in Lincolnshire, they would be packed by Poles in Poland or packed by Kenyans in Kenya. And that may or may not be a good thing. Um, health services, in future anyway, I suspect far more of the operations under the NHS will be conducted in the Philippines in Zambia, Malawi, um, and Dubai than in Britain, um, because it's likely to be cheaper to do that. So to some extent, the issue is where are these activities um, carried on? Um, there are a lot of complex issues here. I mean, I actually agree with Sir Andrew generally that the overall effect of migration is you know, something approaching zero. Um, and academics um, can have a fascinating debate which would rival the debate that theologians could have on such matters. Uh, but, you know, I think in the, in the sectors I deal with, it is not a question of going out to employ Poles. You know, it is often the Poles coming. They are superb workers, and not just Poles as well. And, you know, people are saying in some sectors, you know, they've got the absentee rate down to something under 1%. Um, if that, um, you know, workers are often here for a very short time period. You know, they're here maybe for the summer holidays in the case of students or for a year or two uh, to learn English. Clearly they are here, if they all had to go tomorrow, there would be massive disruption, disruption in the short term, but the economy would adapt. We would simply be paying more for some things than we are, but there would be less pressure on hospitals and schools in, in other respects. Hmm. Can, I, can I add to that? I, I agree with a lot of that. I think that's right. Um, whether someone's paid to work depends on what you pay him. Uh, and one of the difficulties that we have, and it's a general difficulty, is that pay rates for unskilled work are not much higher than for benefits, especially if you have a couple of kids. So th there is an incentive problem there that, that is lacking. Um, and if you are only going to pay basic wages, £5.30 or whatever it is now, then a lot of British people won't work for that. That's, that's the fact of the matter. Uh, I agree with Mark that the answer actually is that many of these jobs should not actually be done here. That we should be moving up the productivity chain, not down it. So to the extent you've got people bending over picking strawberries in uh, Britain, it would actually be much better for everybody if we bought the strawberries from Algeria or whatever, and then they would get the money uh, similar to the argument on remittances. I mean, they, they would be able to export, they would be able to develop their own countries, uh, and you'd get a much better balance in the world economy. So we should be moving up the scale, not down it. And the truth is, when you do pay, pay people more, you get them. Do you remember all that talk about how we didn't have enough nurses or enough doctors? Well, they've now raised the pay of both. And there's so many coming out of the training schools that they can't get into the entry-level jobs uh, because they've been taken by immigrants. So, I mean, th that was just a total failure of, of planning and thinking. Um, but basically, if you raise pay, raise productivity, that is the way to go. 
We don't want to go down the scale, simply adding to an extremely overcrowded island. We are twice as crowded as Germany, in, in England, not Scotland. England is nearly twice as crowded as Germany, four times France, 12 times the United States. How many more people do we want on this island? Thank you. Just to spoil this love in between us, I'm not certain that benefits is the issue. I, I, I don't think it's that people are taking benefits rather than earning £5.35 an hour picking cauliflowers. I think in many cases it's they're doing nothing and earning nothing because they've got other sources of income or savings and they just prefer not to work. Going back to my first job, I was chief bottle washer and ham sandwich maker at the Café des Amis in St. Ballard's in Jersey in 1964. And the people who worked in the café in the summer were a mixture of Jersey students like me and elderly Jersey married women who worked for the season. Now, the Jersey students are running around the world backpacking and enjoying themselves, and the elderly married women are having lunch every day. And the workers are all from Africa and from Poland. And we are an affluent society, and I'm afraid in affluent societies like ours, it is difficult to get local people to do these sort of jobs when actually they don't need to. Uh, Dubai, of course, is an even better example where the native Dubaians, about 10% of the population, happily live off the work done by the other 90% who are not Dubaians. <laughs> Shall we have another question from over there? Two questions. Um, one, about is, one of them is uh, the demographic uh, distribution in society and the argument that uh, if we didn't have immigration, we wouldn't have enough people in the workforce uh, to fund uh, pensions, which in any case are in a state of pretty well collapse anyway. I would appreciate some comment on that. And the other argument is about uh, enforcement, which was made at the end of Sir Andrew's speech. That is that he said that we should reimpose controls that had existed. I wondered what he had in mind and whether he meant uh, somehow a withdrawal from the European Union or, or, or under what terms or what did he have in mind? Thank you. So, two questions, first about pensions and then about what sort of controls we might be talking about. Two very good questions, if I may say so. They're critical questions. On the question of demographics, our population will continue to increase slightly for the next 20 or 30 years without any immigration at all. And the same applies to our workforce, mainly because women are going to work longer over that period. Uh, with immigration at the current level of assumption, I mentioned it's an extra million every five years. Pensions. The Turner Commission, you probably all know about the Turner Commission, it looked in great depth at the whole pensions issue. It absolutely dismissed the idea that immigration can help with pensions. I'll give you the quote. Only high immigration can produce more than a trivial improvement. But it's important to realize that this would only be a temporary effect unless still higher levels of immigration continued in later years, since immigrants themselves grow older and, of course, become pensioners. I can't improve on that. Knocked it for six. Your other question concerned controls, and in particular, Europe. I think the key point here is this, that uh, as the level of the economy of new member states approaches ours, flows of immigrants balance out. We have seen when the EU expanded to Portugal, Spain and Greece, there was a bit of a bump of people coming from those countries. It's now flattened out. So looking back over the last 15, 20 years, net immigration from EU countries is peanuts, 10 or 20,000 a year. Because we've got lots of French, Germans, Portuguese, Spanish, they come, learn the language, do some work, go home, wonderful, we all agreed on that. Uh, so there's no net flow of people. Now that is what will happen eventually with the new countries from uh, Eastern Europe. It'll take a long time because Poland will take 20 or 30 years to get to our level. Uh, and, um, uh, so it'll be a long process, but in the long term, 
it's not a problem. The problem arises, and it's got nothing to do with race, but the problem arises that in the third world, you have huge growths of population, huge number of young men, no jobs, immense pressure for emigration from those countries to the West. And that will continue. So uh, what we are recommending is leave Europe, unless you want to come out of the EU, but that's a different argument, and it's not necessary for this purpose. Leave Europe. But for other countries, there should be much tighter controls. There must be, uh, we must at least know who's on this island. We must check people in and out as they go. That was given up progressively in the last 10 years. The government are going to reinstate that by 2014. Then we must say, look, we've got another 70 million citizens who are free to come here. In January, we'll have another 30 million after that, 100 million people. They're not, of course, they're all coming here, but they're able to come here. In those circumstances, we believe that work permits for people from the rest of the world should be sharply cut back. And in particular, of, of, of special interest to this audience, in particular, we should have a division. The people who come here to work for three or four years in a bank or uh, some financial institution or international organization should be free to come and go at the end of their work. But if they come to settle, then they should fall within a limit that applies to anyone who wants to settle in this country. And that limit should be sharply reduced. That's our view. And building on that, um, in, in terms of, of we, we've heard about how unrealistic the government's current efforts to control things are, how, how should it be made to actually work, do you think? Can it be done? Well, it can be done as I have described it, but the key point I think that what you're touching on there is, can it be made effective? And that in turn depends on removal. An immigration system is only as good as your ability to remove people from the country who have no right to be here. And that at the moment is extraordinarily poor. We have about a quarter of a million failed asylum seekers who have no right to be here at all. They're, they're a half to a third of the people that Mark was talking about. Um, we have allowed the removal system to disintegrate. But it can be done. You need the people and you need the organization. I think we have to change the laws a bit, but it's doable. There's another key point here. When people know that they can't simply come here and overstay their visas and get a job and send money home, when they know they'll be picked up and sent home, they won't come in the first place. So credibility is an important part of this. We're talking about a 10-year program here, maybe longer, but that's the choice. Are you going to put in, into effect uh, a, a long-term program to re-establish a measure of control over our borders? Or are you going to allow the present situation to continue where public confidence in the whole immigration system is at rock bottom? And what effect is that going to have on people's view of uh, other foreigners in this country? Not very good. Well, I agree with most of that. Oh. Let me just take issue, or not take issue, but raise what I believe is the practical problem of dealing with um, immigrants from outside the EU, because the EU, we, we have to accept it's there, we can't turn the clock mm. back. You first of all, as I've said, got the forged document issue, which the government turns a blind eye to. Um, it is racist in its effect because it, it applies to white people. But basically, if you're white, you can get a, um, a forged document that will be sufficient to get you into the country. And indeed, in some cases, I gather you can get a real one. Um, so you know, that's, that's, a, a, that's part of the problem. But the other point is most of the people who are here illegally and take out the asylum seekers but take out others who are here legally or a lot of them have not come in illegally. They've come in as tourists mm. and they've come in as students. Now the moment we had that terrible incident when the police shot the Brazilian um, last year, I said he's an illegal immigrant. Seeing it on the news, he is an illegal immigrant because we don't allow Brazilian electricians to work in this country. How had he come in? I believe he'd come in on a tourist visa and then he had a student visa, and then he had a forged document. Now, you could have written the script. There are thousands and thousands of people in that sort of position. So it's not that people, we can control what we like at the border, but when somebody is coming in from Africa, from anywhere, from India, and says, I am here to visit my cousin Ahmed for the next two months, here is his address, here are the documents, that's what he's here for. 
Now, if we really are going to count them all out and count them all in, or rather count them all in and count them all out, and if you think the NHS IT is a fiasco, you wait till this one. <laughs> I mean, you know, we go to day trips to Calais, so what are we going to do? Go through some sort of electronic wizardry that's going to count us all in and out. Now, it may work. It worked beautifully at Highbury, sorry, at the Emirates Stadium when I was there on Saturday. Quite magnificent. My Oyster card seems to work. But do I really think that in this country we are going to be capable of counting everybody in and out of the country seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year? And remember, a lot of them are quite entitled to be here. Entitled to be here, they're not entitled to work. So the sort of enforcement that we actually need is more about stopping people working who are not supposed to be working, and that actually is the government policy. And that's one of what their policies in respect of asylum seekers, they don't allow them to work because they want the clear message to go back, you will not be allowed to work. Mm -hmm. But the government has no mechanism of stopping people working in the informal economy. It merely has a mechanism of stopping them paying tax. And unless the government's prepared to tackle that one and tackle it properly, then we will get nowhere on all of this. Um, last week I was in Paris, not as a migrant, um, visiting a wholesale lunches, which is their wholesale food market. It's an offence to use cash in that market. Indeed, in many European countries it is, you're not permitted to pay bills by cash. Having just bought something in Switzerland, a cycling map, I had to find a bank account to pay it through. You know, you could not do a lot of things by cash. In Britain, you can do what you like through cash. And until we tackle that issue, it's an essential part of dealing with illegal immigration. We need some joined-up government. The fact is this does not appear on the radar screen of Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. Their targets are related to getting money from people who've got money, and these people haven't got money. So you know, I have some sympathy with the points, but unless we sort out the tax authorities and the informal economy, it's just not going to work. Mm. Can I just add that I agree with that? I think it's a very important area. Um, there is no silver bullet. Uh, we have a huge problem here, and, and the pressures are enormous. Uh, we've got to do what we can do. The illegal working is clearly a very important area, could be tightened, could easily be tightened. If you're an employer, and I'm sure Mark will agree with this, a guy comes along and says he'd, he'd like to work for you, shows you his documents, the government have issued a booklet, 17 pages, that you go through to see whether this guy actually is, is, uh, can be employed legally or not. Well, it's ridiculous. What the government are now going to do, to give them their, their due, is uh, they're going to say to anyone who's here for more than three months, here is an ID card for you, or the equivalent of an ID card, uh, and unless you show that, you won't get any work. So, bit by bit, but the issue is one of political will. Whether the government is prepared to tackle this very large hydra-headed problem. So far, they have not been willing to do it. They talked about it, they produced fatuous arguments to support it, and they've done nothing. That is changing. They are getting into gear. They are putting, are about to put into place the kind of measures that could have some effect. But they sure need to. Okay. Could I take, ask a question about one comment that you made uh, a few minutes ago? You talked about racist elements in the current system because white people were better placed to get false documents. Can, can you explain why, why that is? Yeah, I mean, very simply, anybody from the European Union is entitled to live or work in Britain. Um, so if anybody is white, appears with a Lithuanian passport, the chances are they'll get through an immigration officer. If they're not white, you may question whether they're Lithuanian. It's as simple as that. Right. Well, I, can I just comment on that? Because I don't think that's quite fair. Um, it is certainly true to say that our immigration system is only as good as the um, reliability of passport issuing throughout the EU, because if you've got an EU passport, you walk straight in. Uh, but it's also more than possible to uh, get false passports in India, Africa, anywhere you care to mention. So it's not a question of being white. It's a question of having... Uh, immigration officers who are sufficiently trained to notice uh, false documents. I, I have to say, I, I have a question about enforcement systems of, of, of any sort. Isn't the danger that it, they boil down to being nasty to brown people? There's some risk of that. 
yes, uh, one has to, let's be frank about it, there's some risk, but I don't think, um, they're pretty careful. They're trained to be careful, they're polite, uh, and they try very hard to avoid it. But it is a natural assumption at the moment, it may not be forever, but it's a natural assumption at the moment. If somebody comes along uh, who looks exactly like an English person and speaks exactly like an English person, you wave them through. Whereas if he hardly speaks English, uh, you might not. I mean, that's life, isn't it? I, I, I think there's no way of avoiding that, quite honestly. I'd just, like, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd just like to ask the speakers which country they think has got their immigration system right at the moment and why. So, Andrew, would you Easy. like to start? Easy. Australia. Why? Because they've got an annual limit. It's what we need here. It's what 75% of the population want to see. It's what the government have failed to do. It's perfectly doable. It's easier in Australia because it's a continent there's a lot of, a lot of sea around the place, I believe. Um, but it is doable, they, they count people in, they, they, they record people in, they record people out. Uh, and if you overstay, they'll knock at your door and say, it's time you went. And if you don't go, they move you. It's not quite as simple as that, but they do have an effective system, they have a limit, it's doable. I'm glad Sir Andrew answered first, because I've been trying to think of the answer. Um, you know, the same debate goes on in, you know, the majority of countries, I've actually done consultancy work on it in Jersey, which I know is a small territory, but it's got all the same sort of issues. I mean, I'm not certain Australia is a good comparator. You know, Australia's got an advantage over Britain in this respect, and it's a long way from anywhere. Indeed, the constituent bits of Australia are a long way from each other. Um, and who wants to go to Australia anyway? Plus, my apologies to, to any migrants from Australia in the audience here today. Um, you know, if you go to Victoria Coach Station, on a Sunday night, just look at the coaches coming in from Eastern Europe. Go onto Ryanair's website and see where they fly to, towns in Poland you have never ever heard of. You know, we are 30 minutes away from the continent, foreign parts of the country. I mean, in Australia, you're 30 minutes from nowhere. Um, and, you know, they've had their issues as well. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it works beautifully for Australia, but I'm not certain it would work here. You know, but, I mean, I rather like the Wimbledon principle that we've had in this country for years. You know, we provide a, a great stadium for tennis and we provide the event, but no tennis players. And it's a pity Andy Murray's ruining our reputation in this respect. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, I think we're going to be here. So Andrew and I may not be debating it, but others will be here in 20 years' time, I suspect, um, having a, a very similar debate. I sincerely hope not, because I think by then, uh, we, I hope by then, uh, we will be in a situation where... Uh, we have got it sufficiently un under control to meet the genuine uh, fears of the population about the scale of immigration. And to be fair, Mark, um, it, it's not, I, I had already excluded Europe from the need for immigration control on the grounds that it comes back to level anyway. So the fact that um, the cheap airlines to Poland is, is not really what this is, uh, this is about. It's about uh, the scale of immigration from outside the European Union in the long term. Uh, and that, that's where the problem really lies. We have time for, for one last question. Okay, thank you. Um, as a foreign diplomat, Sir Andrew, um, you've been in the Middle East and so on. Uh, do you think the foreign policy of this country has things to do with immigration? For example, what we've done in Diego Garcia and the selling of arms, etc. Hasn't that got something to do with um, people coming in to this country and elsewhere? Oh, well, our question. I mean, for, under the uh, previous government, the policy was to reduce immigration to the irreducible minimum. And that meant when it came to small islands and even Hong Kong, uh, arrangements were put in place to prevent large-scale movement of people. Yes. Does that answer your question? Sorry, I didn't answer your question. Well, 
if you want to talk about Iraq, I have been a very strong opponent of the invasion of Iraq, both in the diplomatic service and out of it. I think it is the most disastrous decision we've taken in 50 years. Uh, but your broader question is the uh, question of refugees. Uh, I didn't say, but perhaps should have said, that uh, nothing I said applies to refugees. Uh, the total number of asylum seekers nowadays is about 30,000 a year. Immigration is 300,000 a year. It's 10 times asylum. So I'm very happy to debate asylum, uh, although I agree in principle with asylum and granting asylum to those who need it. But it's not the immigration problem. The government like to talk about it because they've actually done something about that. But it's not the problem. Thank you. Time, as ever, is, is against us. I'd like to just finish by uh, drawing your attention to a number of things. There is uh, a bookstall at the back with a number of books relating to this topic provided by the Centre Bookshop. There is also uh, several piles of flyers about a belonging, uh, an exhibition at the Museum of London about the voices of London's refugees. We've just been reminded about the distinction between refugees and migrants. Uh, and finally, the next debate in this series will be on the 21st of November. Uh, Gavin Stamp and Ken Powell will be talking about architecture in the square mile, whether it is vi an example of vision or vandalism. <clears throat> I'd like to thank you all very much for coming, and I'd like to thank our two speakers. Thank you. Thank you.